Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I do these things says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Thanks, Rachel. Good morning, everybody. Uh, please do keep that part of the Bible open, and uh, if you want to take notes, there's also a space to do that in the notice sheet that you were given as you came in. As we begin, I want to take you back to a time uh, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, Natty and I had just got married, and we decided to go on honeymoon in Lapland in Finland. So we got married in uh, November, and because there was very little chance of sun anywhere in the UK, we decided to head for the snow. It was just before, actually, the time when all the children descend on Laplands looking for Santa. We just missed that, which was great. Um, now, we've got some lovely memories of that holiday, but one lasting memory was about five days into our holiday. Um, it was minus 25 degrees Celsius, and I was being a miserable Eeyore, as we were thinking about earlier. Now, everything about the setting was absolutely beautiful. We were cross-country skiing. The skies were stunning. There were reindeer um, just next to us on the plane. Um, but I failed to appreciate any of it, and the reason why was because of a cup of coffee. Now, we set out that morning for a small coffee shop um, a couple of miles away from where we were staying, and the thought of a lovely cup of coffee by a warm fire in a cafe was the only thing that was keeping me going in the cold. But then we arrived at the coffee shop to find out it was actually a Sunday, and it was closed, and there was no coffee, no fire. 
And the only thing awaiting us was a return journey in the bitter cold. Now, Nat was dealing with this much better than I was, I must say, but I'd lost hope. (laughs) No coffee, no confidence, no joy. It was a classic case of failed expectations. And that story is just a picture of what's going on in the days of Malachi that we're reading about this morning, because this too is a story of failed expectations. Now, these people who Malachi is prophesying to are the people of Israel who have returned from exile in Babylon. And it's worth remembering as we come to these words that those who returned from exile back to Jerusalem at this time, um, about 400 or so years before Jesus, they were the committed ones. Many of them had left homes, jobs, livelihoods, schools, hobbies, and left uh, other people behind in Babylon in order to come and serve their God in Jerusalem. They are the most zealous of the Israelites. And they returned with very high expectations. God had promised a glorious return, a restoration of his kingdom, evil to be done away with once and for all. But here they are many years later, and their expectations are very far from reality. And they're wondering, where are the glory days that we were promised? If joy and expectation and obedience marked their return to Jerusalem, then now despair and discouragement and disobedience characterize their lives now. They've basically given up on God. They've arrived at the coffee shop only to find that it was closed. And they've lost hope that any of God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, in essence, their claim is this one. Serving God makes no difference. That's their claim. Serving God makes no difference. That's what they think they've learned from their experience over the the past years. Serving God, honoring him, obeying him. It makes no difference at all. And as we're drawn into the words of Malachi today, I want us to consider the merit of that claim. Is that true? Does it make a difference whether we serve and worship the God of the Bible? Or to put it another way, is it worth being a Christian? Is it worth living our lives for Jesus Christ? Whether you're a believer in Jesus this morning or whether you're somebody looking into the claims of Jesus... This is a life and death question. Does serving God make any difference at all? Well, let's begin by looking a bit more closely at the claim. So the claim in verses 13 to 15, serving God makes no difference. Have a look at verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Now, if you've been here for our Malachi series, then this pattern will be very familiar to you now. Um, The sections of Malachi are sometimes known as disputations because of the disputes that we see uh, throughout this book. And we have it again. So here's a statement. You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord. And then the dispute, what have we said against you? And then the Lord's answer in verses 14 and 15. We sometimes talk in our church about making the most of conversation over tea and coffee after our meetings. We want to use that time to speak the word of God to one another, to welcome new people who are here at church. But do you see that the over coffee conversation in Jerusalem was not an encouraging time? 
It was a time for people to vent their frustrations at the Lord and say to one another, isn't it futile to serve this God? They were grumbling. They were frustrated. And their words basically boil down to two things. We're worse off and other people are better off. That's what they're saying. Firstly, we're worse off, say the Israelites. Verse 14, you have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the sacrifices. It wasn't worth leaving our homes in Babylon. It wasn't worth packing up our stuff and moving to Jerusalem. We would, would have been better off staying in exile and not bothering to obey this God. What have we gained by carrying out his requirements, they ask? The people paint a picture of life that has been worthless. We've gone about like mourners before the Lord, they say. We've offered sacrifices. We've confessed our sin. We've turned back to the Lord. What a miserable, futile life that we've lived. But not only do they see themselves as worse off, they also see other people as better off than they are. Do you see that in verse 15? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. So not only do they look at their own lives and think that it was no use serving God, they also look around at other people, people who pay no attention to God, and conclude that they are the blessed ones. Now they call the arrogant blessed and the evildoers prosper. Just imagine it with me. Maybe they're in Jerusalem looking around at the nice homes of the super rich around them and thinking, wouldn't it be great to have the same thing? Perhaps they see others working and making money on the Sabbath, getting ahead in life, and they think, I want a piece of that. Maybe they see other people spending their money on whatever they want, but they, the Israelites, have to give a tithe to God. Perhaps they make their way to the temple with animals over their shoulders and they see their friends heading off on a nice trip to the mountains. And their conclusion is that God doesn't care and that being one of his people makes no difference and that God is never going to act to fulfill his promises. So why bother? Now we see in verse 15, uh, the words that they say at the end of verse 15, even those who challenge God escape. Now, that's the same word uh, that was used back in verse 10, if you remember, when God urged the people to put him to the test. There, he wanted them to return to him in their hearts and receive the blessing of life with him. But in verse 15, it's a bit more like a child who looks at their parents when they're about to do something they know is wrong. I wonder if you've been that parent. I'm sure you've all been that child. The child steals a glance in the parent's direction and then they go for it. You know, they push over their sister or they put their finger in the plug hole or whatever they want to do. Um, and then they wait to see if the parent will act. And if the parent doesn't act, then, well, they may as well do it again. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. People are challenging God. They're living their own way. They're indulging their own desires. They're rebelling against God's commands. And the people are thinking, we thought God was going to come and do away with evil. We thought God was going to act once and for all to restore his kingdom, but he's not. He's not doing anything. And so in the minds of the Israelites, what's the point of serving this God? Now, throughout Malachi, we've seen ourselves reflected back, um, as Nathan was saying earlier, in the words and the attitudes of the people. I wonder if you can resonate with the words of God's people here. Now, some of you here this morning wouldn't identify as a Christian. If that's you, then we're really, really glad that you're here. You're really welcome. And I wonder if you can relate to these words. 
You might be asking the same question of Christianity. Is there any value in being a Christian? Is God really there? Does he really keep his promises? Or would siding with Jesus just be a waste of time? You might be asking yourself that kind of question. Or maybe you are a Christian this morning, and like the people in Malachi, you feel like you've given so much, maybe with so little gain. Maybe you look at friends who don't have to sacrifice what you do or serve in the ways that you do, friends who enjoy free Sundays or more disposable income or more popularity at school, and you can see your heart murmuring, what's the gain, what's the point? Many a Christian who I'm sure people know Many Christians that maybe we know have drifted away from Jesus because they've become jaded and cynical and discouraged. Looked over the fence and thought, wow, the grass is greener on the other side. This is the claim that the people are making here in Malachi. Serving God makes no difference. And so we need to ask, is there any merit to that claim? Is there any truth in that claim? That's what I want to consider as we turn to the reality I just notice again what's been happening for these people here in Malachi. Their world has started to shrink. As we were thinking about earlier, they are short-sighted, and all they can think about is themselves and their immediate circumstances. They're forgetting God's mercy in the past. They're forgetting his word to them in the present. They're forgetting his promises about the future. And so again, they need to lift their gaze and trust in God's word And they need to see that serving God makes all the difference in the world. This is our second point. Serving God makes all the difference. I've talked to lots of students over the past few weeks about their impending exams. I know there are also young people here who've been sitting exams, GCSEs, A-levels. And you all know um, that as the day of your exam approaches, you are spurred into action, aren't you? You know, two months becomes two weeks becomes two days, becomes two hours, and you know you need to knuckle down and get prepared. Well, in these verses, God brings to our attention the coming certain day of the Lord in order to rouse his people to repentance and faith. Five times in these verses, um, the day or day of the Lord is mentioned. And the key thing that I want us to see is that this will be a day of distinction, a day of separation, Have a look at verse 18. You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. We're going to see in our remaining verses that there are two ways to spend a life, either for God or against God. And there are therefore two ways to spend eternity, either with God or without God. Let's focus first on what this day will mean for the arrogant and the evildoer. It will be a day of unbearable judgment for God's enemies. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. You might have seen the fire and the fire engines along the one-way system this week in Lancaster, and if you walked past the shop where that fire was, you might have seen the devastation uh, behind uh, the windows. Fire is incredibly destructive, isn't it? And the bigger it gets, the more unbearable it becomes. We just can't get close. And God wants to portray this future day as a day of unbearable fire for those who oppose him. 
This judgment day will be like a furnace. And every arrogant person who opposes God and every evildoer who ignores God will be brought before his holy presence. And every one of them will be consumed by his perfect, righteous wrath. Now the people in Jerusalem, do you remember, they were tempted to look around at the arrogant and the evildoers and say, they're blessed, they're the ones who are better off than we are. They were tempted to envy those who did not know God. But one glimpse of this final day of judgment should remind us that this is not the path to blessing. This is a journey to hell. Dear friends, we need to know that this day is coming. It's so easy to push it out of our minds. But as we read in places like Hebrews chapter 9, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The God who does not change and who is blazing in his purity and in his justice must bring all evil to account. And deep down, isn't this what we all want? Isn't this the yearning behind every campaign for justice that we see in our world? We long to see wrongdoing punished, don't we? And evil to be done away with. And that means that our evil and our arrogance and our wickedness will come under the holy gaze of God and not a root or branch will be left. As the people of Israel lift their gaze to the blazing day of judgment, their perspective has to change. God will act on this final day. He has not forgotten his promise to do away with evil and establish his kingdom. But as I mentioned earlier, this is also a day of distinction. Not everyone will have to face the fire. Not everyone will have to bear the weight of God's judgment because it's not only a day of judgment, it's also a day of joy. A day of unspeakable joy for God's people. Now, as we've heard Malachi preach at church, you might have been wondering to yourself, are there any faithful people left in Jerusalem at this time? It doesn't seem like it, does it, from what we've read so far? But now we're given a glimpse of a faithful remnant who have responded to the message of the prophet, a group who have returned to the Lord, as we were seeing they should do earlier, a group who think that serving God is worth it, and a group who will face a very different reality on the final day. Look at me at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. I was invited along to a jazz jam recently, and it was great fun playing the drums with a group of musicians. But one of the things that surprised me most about that was just how many people there are in Lancaster who enjoy jazz music. The faithful remnant is alive and well. Here in Jerusalem, we see a similar thing. There is a pulse in the people of God. There is life. A group of people whose over-coffee conversation is very different to the one that we heard earlier. These people are committed to the Lord. They fear his name. And the Lord is attentive to their words. And at some point we read here, a scroll of remembrance was written in the presence of God concerning this faithful group. Now what is this scroll that is written? Well, one idea, one possibility is that it's referring to a heavenly scroll, God's scroll. We see elsewhere in the Bible that God keeps a record of his people. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation. And so maybe this is God writing down the names of his people in his metaphorical book. That's a biblical idea. It might be what's going on here. Or it could be an earthly scroll, a scroll written not by God, but by the people themselves. 
And we saw something like this last week in Nehemiah chapter 9. Just have a look at, on the screen um, at the end of the chapter. The people say this. We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So in this case, in Nehemiah, the people were committing themselves to their covenant God, and they were promising to obey his commands and walk in his ways. And I wonder whether that's likely to be the case here in Malachi. These books, Nehemiah and Malachi, were written at a similar stage in salvation history, post the exile. And at the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 4, the people are told to remember the law of Moses. So this is maybe a book written by the people as a way of expressing their commitment to God. But either way, we have a group of people, men and women, who fear the Lord and who honor his name. So here's the question. What difference will it make to be part of this people on the day of the Lord? Will it make any difference? Will belonging to God make a difference? Well, let's start to answer that by looking at verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. They, this group that we read about in verse 16, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. When I was younger, I remember being asked, if there was a fire in your home and you could only rescue one possession, what would it be? And if you've been asked that kind of question, it's a way of getting us to think about what is most valuable to us. Well, we know what it is for God. On the day of his fiery judgment, he will gather up his treasured possession, his people, and he will spare them from judgment. On that day, he will step in and say, these ones, they're mine. They're my treasured ones, my precious ones. They will not face my judgment. I will be their God, and they will be my people forever. And the experience of God's people on this day will be like a calf being released from the stall. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Just contrast the burning fire of God's judgment that we've already been seeing this morning. Now with this image, the rising warmth of the sun, God's people given righteousness, healed and saved forevermore. And they will be so overcome with joy that they will go out leaping like calves from the stall. I don't know if you've ever seen calves released from the barn for the first time. I spent a very happy few minutes this week looking at videos of calves running around fields. Uh, if you've got a free Sunday afternoon, then I'd recommend that to you. Um, here's what they do on the screen. They jump, they frolic, they run about as fast as they can. You get the sense that if you could see the facial expression on these calves, I don't think you can, um, but if you could, they would be the happiest creatures alive at this moment. Newfound freedom, green grass, unhindered joy. And the Lord wants to put that image in the minds of his people. We experience glimmers of joy, don't we, as we live in this life. The joy of a nice meal with good friends. The joy of seeing a beautiful setting in the Lake District. The joy of swimming in a lake or playing on the floor with small children or laughing until we hurt. All those things are just a glimmer. A small foretaste of the unspeakable joy that will be ours when we stand before the Lord on that day as his treasured people. But I wonder if you find the next verse just a little bit jarring. 
because straight after the joy of verse 2, we are brought face to face again with the fate of the wicked. Have a look at verse 3. Then you, God's people, will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Now, it seems to be that Malachi wants us to see this as part of the good news. You will trample on those who are judged. It's part of the joy on this future day, but I want to ask, as I'm sure you're asking, how is that a good thing? Well, I think the answer is that God's people will share in God's victory over evil. They will stand on that day in a world made new, a world where there are no more people who oppose God, where there are no more tyrannical rulers, where there are no more abusive husbands, where there are no more lying parents, a world where there's no more adultery or anger or addiction, a world where God's glory is restored, where justice reigns, where evil ends, and where wickedness withers away forevermore. And therefore, God's people will rejoice. Not because we have brought justice to the world, but because we stand with the one who has. Now, we see something similar in the book of Revelation, which I know some of you are studying at the moment in midweek youth groups in Connect and Focus. There we see God finally defeat evil, which is represented by a city called Babylon. Have a look on the screen. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Just the next verse. Again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The unspeakable joy of God's people stands on the other side of God's unbearable judgment because only then can we enjoy life with God in a restored world with no more evil. That is the future of our world. And every hour that passes means that we are one step closer to this final day. So as we conclude, I want to consider with you the response that we must have to these realities. Let me remind you that as we conclude our time in Malachi this morning, we're also coming to the end of the Old Testament. This is the last book in our Bibles and the last words of the last Old Testament prophet before the coming of God's Messiah. As you can see from the next page, then we're into the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. And so what note does this book end on? Well, let's read verses 4 to 6. And I think this is Malachi's conclusion uh, to the whole book and summarizes things really well. So verses 4 to 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Very striking words to end the Old Testament with. Malachi's readers are given two takeaway points here at the conclusion of this book, two things that they should dwell on as they roll up the scroll. And they're a great summary of what we've seen in Malachi. Firstly, remember the word of the Lord. Remember the word of the Lord in verse 4. We've seen throughout Malachi, haven't we, that God's covenant with his people still stands. God has loved Judah back in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. He continues to love his people right through to this day of Malachi and through to today. 
As we read in verse 4, these laws, this covenant was given for all Israel, not just for some people in the past, but for the people here who are listening to the prophet Malachi. And the people in Malachi's day need to remember that. His promises were for the people in Exodus, for the believers in Babylon, and for the people in Malachi's day. God does not change, and so his covenant, his words, his promises, they still stand. And so the people need to lift their gaze, they need to look back, and they need to remember the covenant that their promise-keeping God has made. And secondly, they need to remember the day of the Lord, not just looking back, but looking forward. Because God promises in verse 5 to send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah, he'll be a messenger like Malachi who will be there to turn the hearts of the people back to God and to call them to repentance. As you read here, he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, this person will bring about change and repentance among the people of God. And as we know from the New Testament, just a couple of pages on in our Bibles, this is exactly what John the Baptist came to do. If you know John, he was a man who looked like Elijah, he sounded like Elijah, he had a ministry like Elijah, and he cleared the ground ready for the coming day of the Lord. And then came the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful Israelite, the one who feared the Lord, the one who possessed righteousness in himself, and therefore the only one who deserves the joy of heaven the only one who does not deserve the fire of God's judgment, and yet the one who willingly went to his death in order to bear in his body the great and dreadful day of the Lord in our place. Let me read some words from Matthew 27 and the moment that Jesus died. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we need to understand that this moment when Jesus died on the cross, he was experiencing the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the sinless one, the righteous one, bearing the unbearable fire of God's judgment. And his death is now for every person who believes in him, the gateway to eternal joy with God forever. Earlier we read the words of Hebrews chapter 9. Just listen to how this verse goes on. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We need to know that a time is coming when the earth will be consumed by God's judgment, when God will strike the earth with a curse, as we see in verse 6. But for all who have trusted in the death of God's Son, Jesus, we will find ourselves opening our eyes on that day to a world beyond our wildest imaginations. We will be like calves running free for the first time. And I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian this morning, then that future can be yours through Jesus. We've seen, haven't we, that no words are able to describe the horror of the judgment to come. Only Christ knows what it's like to experience the fullness of God's wrath when he died on the cross. And no words are able to describe the joy that we will experience when we're with God forever. 
And so like the people of God in Malachi's day, we are called to trust in God's word, to believe his promises, and to wait for this future. And to wait remembering that it is not futile, and it never will be futile, it's not a waste of time, to live our lives for the one who gave his life for us. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to an end. Let's pray. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this about the Christian believers. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus can rescue us from the coming day of your judgment. We confess to you that all of us deserve the fire of your judgment, and yet we praise you that we have been offered eternal joy through the one who died for us. Please help us to fix our eyes on that day when at last the Savior of our world will reign as King forever, when you will be our God and we will be your people. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.